welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill episode number 128 when we go back, back to, the, to past the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.com or subscribe to us via iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and by tuning in to the alluring tones of the Prodigy, broadcasting live from his basement every Friday. Mm-hmm. So uh, this week we have another PSA book, but a, uh, a little bit uncomfortable one, I guess, maybe. A little it's, bit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the Amazing Spider-Man versus the Prodigy. This one came out in 1976. Story is called Pull of the Prodigy. This was jointly published by Marvel Comics and Planned Parenthood. Written by Ann Robinson. Art by Ross Andrew. Inked by Mike Esposito. Colored by Jan Cohen. Lettered by Joe Rosen, covers by Ross Andrew, and the cover price, free to the curious. Mm. Or actually, well, there's nothing on the cover, but we find out later it's 35 cents a piece by mail. Yeah, but or three you, for a dollar. Three for a dollar, exactly. But if you, go, <laughs> if you go down to the location, I think they'll probably let you have one. So, uh, of course, we like to do our bios, and uh, first is about Ann Robinson, the writer. But in a first time for the Cosmic Treadmill... We're going to provide some biographical information for two people as writer, because we're not positive which one it is. Nope. Uh, most sources point to it as Anne Robinson, who wrote the Mighty Marvel Comic Strength and Fitness book, which came out in 1976, which was drawn by Jumping Joe Giella, uh, with some additional dialogue by Stan Lee, and credit her for bringing uh, forth the record Spider-Man colon Rock Reflections of a Superhero, which came out in 1976 on Love Song Records, although that would only be in an executive capacity. I think she just basically signed the uh, dotted line. The deal, yeah. And that, that was it. Uh, her credited name for both of those is uh, Anne Picardo, Agile and Picardo in the exercise book. So unless this person changed her name uh, to or from Robinson at one point, uh, we don't really see the connection there. Yeah, but uh, Brian Cronin over at CBR.com thinks it might be an Ann Robinson who currently lives in New Hampshire and works as a writer, as well as being a lecturer uh, about author uh, Shirley Jackson. Uh, This Ann was born in New York City. She received her Bachelor of Arts in English from Connecticut College in 1959 and then moved to New Hampshire in 1967. She has an impressive resume. She entered publishing as an editorial assistant from McCall's magazine the very same year she graduated college. Uh, She would later be an advertising copywriter for radio. She began at WKBK Radio in 1976, and then she opened her own agency in 1978. Uh, she'd go on to receive her Masters in, of Fine Arts in Writing from Vermont College of Norwich, the Vermont College of Norwich or Norwich. Sure, uh, I, think, yeah. I think it's which, but I'm not sure. Which? Okay, so the Vermont <laughs> College of Norwich University in 1997. She's contributed articles to the New Hampshire's new. Newspaper, the Keen Sentinel. That's America's fifth oldest newspaper, and it's still in print. Yeah, since, uh, yeah, that's pretty wild. Uh, since 1971, uh, and here's the uh, real the real thread here. Uh, Anne says she was a volunteer public relations coordinator for various local nonprofit organizations, which included. Planned Parenthood, along with United Way, Home Health Care and Community Services, and this was between the years of 1967 to the mid-80s. So this, Ann Robinson, seems like she might be the perfect candidate yeah. to have done this work, probably, you know, as a side gig. The thing of it is, Ms. Robinson has provided an extensive work history and bibliography, and for whatever reason, it might become clear towards the end, this comic <laughs> isn't in it. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's so comprehensive that to have this omitted was is uh, is glaring. It, it really is. It is. Uh, <laughs> but you're right. It's there may be there may be a specific reason this one did not make the cut. Uh, if you have to ask us, we do think the one Brian Conan named is probably the most likely one to write the story. The other hand sounds like more of an executive. Than a creative type, and uh, from what we can tell, her name wasn't even Robinson, so <laughs> that takes out. But if anyone knows the answer for sure, definitely write into the show. Let us know. We'd Please love do. to know for sure who did this. But uh, somebody we definitely do know is Ross Andrew, uh, full name Rosalov Andruskevich, born June fifth, fifteenth, nineteen twenty-seven, in Cleveland, Ohio. He attended the High School of Music and Art with friend and future collaborator, collaborator Mike Esposito and drafted and served in the Army during World War II, who was discharged in 1946. Uh, Andrew uh, attended Burns Hogarth's Cartoonist and Illustrator School, later became the School of Visual Arts. Uh, that was in 1947. 
He worked on the Tarzan newspaper strip from 1948 until it ended around 1951, and Ross did the layouts and Bern Hogarth would ink it. He formed a company with Mike Esposito in 1951 called MR Publications, and uh, Ross Andrew and Mike did uh, freelance work in the short-lived Mr. Universe comic, uh, July 1951 to, to 1953. Then they formed Mike Ross Publications in 1953 and did some 3D comics and romance comics and three issues of the Mad Magazine ripoff, Get Lost! Exclamation point. And you'll see this is a thing. The two of them, they are thick as thieves, Chris. They just, mm-hmm. they just work together, including on this very comic that we're going to read. Uh, in 1952, Andrew and Esposito began a long relationship with DC Comics, doing primarily war comics. Beginning with All American Men of War number six, December 1962, February 1963, uh, cover dates, where they drew a story apiece. Andrew had a nine year run on Wonder Woman, beginning with issue number 98. That was a May 1958 cover date. Yes, and uh, for Skywall Publications, Ross and Mike Esposito would contribute a lot of work in the early 70s, particularly to their horror line. Andrew and Esposito formed, uh, they formed Clevart Enterprises in 1970, another clearinghouse for their freelance work. In 1972, they would publish two issues of a humor magazine called Up Your Nose, parentheses, and Out Your Ear. <laughs> uh, uh, Andrew left D.C. in 1971. Uh, he had a five-year stint as penciler on Amazing Spider-Man uh, in 1973, which was mostly written by Jerry Conway. During this time, they would introduce The Punisher, an Amazing Spider-Man issue number 129, February 1974, cover date. Uh, he would pencil the first big intercompany crossover. That would be uh, Superman versus The Amazing Spider-Man. That was in 1976, and it was also written by Jerry Conway. And right around that time, Andrew and Esposito handled art duties on this very book. But first, he returned to DC Comics as an editor, and he remained there until 1986. Uh, he last published uh, his last published work was for Archie Comics' Zen Intergalactic Ninja in 1993. Uh, he teamed once again with Mike Esposito. Uh, Andrew was inducted into the Will Eisner Comic Book Hall of Fame in 2007, and he would pass away uh, November 9th, 1993, in Far Rockaway, Queens, New York City. Yeah, you know, these guys going through a lifetime of so many different companies, it's like a reversal of what we see today, Chris. Like, sure. today you set up a YouTube channel when you're 10, that thing follows you until your deathbed, you know what I mean? <laughs> you, could be, you could be Spawn Lover 666, you're like, oh God, I was, just, I was nine years old when I did that, but now, back then you just change it up. So, a uh, little bit about Planned Parenthood, who are they, what, what are they about, where do they come from? Uh, the Planned Parenthood Federation of America, Incorporated, the PPFA, or Planned Parenthood just by itself, is a nonprofit organization that began October 16, 1916, when Margaret Sanger, her sister Ethel Byrne, and Fania Mindell opened the first birth control clinic in the U.S. in the Brownsville section of Brooklyn, New York. All three women were arrested and jailed for violating provisions of the 1873 Comstock Act and were accused of distributing obscene materials at the clinic. That's what the act the act was uh, written to prohibit against. Mm-hmm. Uh, the court case that followed, known as the Brownsville Trials, brought national attention to these women's cause, uh, and their misdemeanor charges were appealed twice in order to prolong the publicity. Though their convictions were not overturned, the judge in the final appeal modified the law to allow physician-prescribed birth control. In 1921, the clinic was organized into the American Birth Control League, and by 1941, it was operating 222 centers and had served 49,000 clients. Some disagreed with the anti-family connotation of the phrase birth control. In 1938, a group of private citizens organized the Citizens Committee for Planned Parenthood to aid the American Birth Control League, and in 1942, the League changed its name to the Planned Parenthood Federation of America. That rolls off the tongue a little it bit does. easier. It's a little better, yeah, it's true. <laughs> now, uh, following Margaret Sanger, uh, Alan Frank Gutmacher became president of Planned Parenthood, and he served from 1962 until 1974. And it was during his tenure that the FDA approved the first oral contraceptive, or, you know, the birth control pill. Mm-hmm. It was also during this time that Planned Parenthood successfully lobbied the federal government for support, uh, culminating with President Richard Nixon's signing of Title X to provide governmental uh, subsidies for low-income women to access family planning services. And it was also during and prior to this time that Planned Parenthood uh, played a central role in reforming abortion laws in support of cases like Roe v. Wade 1973, which did legalize abortion nationwide. Guttmacher would step down, and from what we can tell, there was no president until 
until 1978, when uh, Faye Waddleton uh, became the first African-American president of Planned Parenthood. And sometime in between those prezes, this very comic book was created. you got to wonder if it kind of squeaked through, right? If there was just, like, uh, nobody well, mining the store? <laughs> well, after we read it, we might uh, we might know more about that. <laughs> we might have a little more ideas. So, yeah, The Amazing Spider-Man vs. The Prodigy. Right off the bat, the keen eye of a Marvel Comics fan can tell something is wrong with this cover. There's no Marvel logo in the corner box, for one thing. Mm-hmm. But the image, which is Spider-Man hanging from a helicopter by some webbing <clears throat> while it flies away from New York City... Looks like it could just be a panel within the book, right? This really doesn't look like a good cover image. It's not image. a very good cover image. Uh, yeah. It's like immediately you can just tell this is a giveaway. Yeah, for immediately. sure. Immediately. You don't even need to like <laughs> know, see the title. Uh, but it's not. It's not actually a panel within the book. The title of the issue is The Amazing Spider-Man versus The Prodigy! Exclamation point, Which is another tip-off that something's funny here. It's true, it's true. We open with Peter saying, Peter on the cover saying, This hardly contributes to my jet-setter image, but I have to know where this bird is headed. Even the cover's dialogue is unimpressive and it doesn't is. do much for you. Uh, on the inside cover is an advertisement for the Big Three Info Packet. Oh, so we're talking uh, Marvel, DC, and uh, mid-70s uh, Harvey comics? No, no, these are actually three pamphlets offered oh. by Planned Parenthood. A wall-crawling Spider-Man squats in the corner approvingly. Uh, the, the three are Sex Alphabet, Love and Sex in Plain Language, and Understanding Sex, colon, A Young Person's Guide. And these are 35 cents a piece or three for a dollar. Mm-hmm. Now, the opening splash page tells us that Stan Lee presents a special Planned Parenthood issue of The Amazing Spider-Man. And we can see Spider-Man crawling up the side of a tall building, like, you know, like he does. Caption reads... Some people like to take it easy on a balmy summer evening in New York, sip a little yoo-hoo, engage in some friendly chit-chat, but not our favorite wall crawler. Man, I miss you, who I haven't had that in a long time. I haven't even thought about it in a long time. Yeah. Uh, Peter Peter goes, from here, you can can certainly catch the breeze. It's as stuffy as a tea party at the mayor's mansion down there. But even as Spider-Man reaches the imposing height of the top of the Pan Am building, he faces the ultimate, irresistible pull of the prodigy. Yes, and the Pan Am building is now known as the MetLife Building. It's a 59-story skyscraper located at 200 Park Avenue and East 45th Street in Manhattan, and it opened in 1963. It's famous for having its own helipad on the roof, and uh, wealthy adventurers can still take a trip direct from JFK Airport into Midtown Manhattan that way. That's right. I never, I haven't seen it happen in years, but did you, you <laughs> used to see it. Reason, you could. You yeah. could do it. Uh, Spider-Man scurries right on top of that letter P in the word Pan Am. Nothing like a little hike to give a person a fresh perspective. And with the help of my web shooters, I can get as far off the ground as I like. Dr. J, eat your heart out. Julius Irving was a professional basketball player, active from 1971 to 1987, mainly on the Philadelphia 76ers. Known as Dr. J, he popularized the high-flying style of play, often leaping above the rim of the basket and dunking the ball. He was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 1993. And then Spider-Man spies a very fancy luxury helicopter approaching. My, my, what have we here? The helicopter lands on the Pan Am building and a line of teenagers stream into it single file. Looks to be more people than the chopper can, the chopper can actually contain, but, uh, I mean, we're, we're not we're not part of like, uh, uh, any yeah. kind of federal transportation, so we don't know. Maybe yeah. maybe they lie on top of each other. I'm not sure how it works. I don't know how you pack people. Exactly, yeah. Uh, well, faithful ones, as you can see, what we have here is a helicopter being ready for takeoff, and its passengers hardly look like your run-of-the-mill, we-have-a-date-for-the-polo-matches upper-class commuters. And one of the goons goes, Watch your step, kids! You don't want to lose your heads over this now! And Spider-Man's watching this from a darkened corner of the roof. What a sense of humor! I wonder where this motley crew is off to. They hardly look at like they have the bread to travel first class. Uh, come on. I mean, these kids don't have a lot of money, okay? Do you have to keep making a thing out of it? Like, yeah. whatever. Let, let the kids have the helicopter ride. Please. And what would a bunch of teenagers be doing boarding one of these whirlybirds this time of night anyway? They should be home listening to their new Harry Gross albums. Henry Gross was a founding member of the group Sha Na Na and is best known for his 1976 hit song Shannon. He was the youngest person at age 18 to play on the main stage at the Woodstock Music and Art Fair in 1969. Hmm. 
Now, the uh, scene shifts to a whirlybird's eye view, now over an opulent mansion on a well-manicured estate. And if you were wondering the same thing, we won't torture you any longer. Let us whisk you away on the wings of Marvel, faster than any mere helicopter can travel, we might add, and drop you down at the very spot toward which this kidcopter is headed, a secluded 200-acre estate somewhere in the mountains. Yeah, on the ground, a couple of guys are preparing for the helicopter's landing. Guy, this should be the next bunch of kids uh, so far the boss has recruited and robotized kids all over the country. His master plan is almost completed. Thick of it. He's got thousands of kids so brainwashed they aren't capable of doing anything but carrying out his plan. Is that voice of his? When he gets that special vibration in his voice, it's like the kids are drawn to him by the very power of his words. See note page four, Ed. Yeah, that editor's note is actually included inside the word balloon. And, uh, it's, 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 just refer- wrong. it's just wrong. <laughs> it's just so wrong. And it references something that's going to be on the following page. Like, what is happening? <laughs> See note on next page. We'll get there. We'll, we're, we're getting there. <laughs> Give us a minute. <laughs> we do jump to that next page, and we meet the boss of this operation, who is, unsurprisingly, the prodigy. Hey. Maybe somewhat surprisingly, he's a bald, green-skinned alien who's wearing a scowl. Uh, His head, as you might imagine, is on the large side as well. Uh, He's been dressing up in some cool duds and a human mask in order to entice the children. Yeah, he says, This pale skin makes me nauseous. I wouldn't be an Earthling for all the brain power on Intellectia. At least not a white earthling. No, apparently not. (laughs) No, the prodigy applies his human mask before a mirror that has a sticker that reads Galactic Glory stuck on it. (laughs) That should do it. A few more hours and I should have the youth of this country well under control. And when I'm in front of those television cameras tonight, I'll hit that beardless, mindless mob with everything I've got, especially my magnetic monotone. We have an asterisk at the end of this dialogue, which directs us to an editor's note at the bottom of the panel. Say, this must be the editor's note referenced on the last page. Oh, like I think so, yeah. Hardy Boys mystery. What a fun time. <laughs> the uh, caption reads, Note, the prodigy's voice took on its special magnetic powers when the rocket ship coming from his native planet, Intellectia, in the Andromeda Galaxy, passed through the Earth's ionosphere. Because of weak deflector shields, his vocal cords were exposed to intense heat and radiation on Earth. His voice draws people to him like a vacuum cleaner. So, you know, he has alien powers wasn't good enough? I mean... Uh, we, have to, we have to add all these layers? You could have just said that, too. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that would have done it for me, you know? With like, yeah, he, he's an alien with who can control people with his voice. We don't need to make a Dagwood sandwich out of it. Done, That's good enough. <laughs> yeah, I don't really get all this uh, pseudoscientific stuff, but our prodigy says, my mind, binding has, my, my mind binding has worked. They won't learn anything about anything here. They can't think straight, and my lies will lead them into stupid mistakes. Hmm, now the prodigy walks the halls of his opulent mansion on his way to intercept this new batch of kids. And he's telling the reader how evil he is all along the way. It's nice of him, yeah. It is. How I love the way I get them to swallow all the sludge I hand out. Imagine... They really, they really think you can't get pregnant before you're 15, or the first time you have sex, or if you only do it once in a while. Man, what have I been reading? Uh, we have a caption that reads, Now, Marvelites, check out whether you've heard any of this pernic- per- pernicious pap being peddled. Yeah, I only know the one about having sex in a swimming pool. I'm not sure. Or the hot tub. The hot tub's another one, yeah. yeah. They'll have, they'll have babies right and left from ignorance, just as I planned for my giant baby snatch. They're needed for child labor on Intellectia, so we superior ones can put our brain power to conquering other planets. Well, it sounds like they developed the system. Yeah, don't tell Mr. Brain Power that babies are not conceived due to ignorance, okay? <laughs> A little more to it than that. My mission is almost complete. Soon our saucers will scoop thousands of babies off to Intellectia. 
Caption reads, We hate to tear you away from this dramatic pontificating, but we don't want to lose track of our favorite web-slinger. So as we rejoin Spider-Man atop the Pan Am building, we see that the helicopter with its youthful cargo is about to lift off. It didn't take off yet? I mean, how, how do we get that whirly bird's eye view of the uh, mansion a couple of pages back? Maybe that was a drone. Maybe, that's true. Maybe? Probably I, was I it. That probably was Must it. Be. Uh, not wanting to lose the helicopter, Spider-Man slings a web onto its undercarriage and climbs up stealthily. And this scene is not from the same angle as the cover. <laughs> <laughs> Spidey goes, well, Spidey old boy, it's about time you made a decision. Are you going to follow this thing through, or are you going to go home and catch the beginning of the Waltons? You better decide fast. The Waltons was a primetime American television series that ran on CBS from 1972 to 1981 about a family in rural Virginia during the 1930s and 40s. The series was created by Earl Hamner Jr., based on his 1961 book Spencer's Mountain, which had a movie of the same name made from it two years later. The series was known for its expansive cast of sickeningly polite characters, and the greeting the entire Walton family in a group could take several minutes. It really would mm-hmm. be like, howdy there, Paul. Hi, John boy. How you doing? Uh, Spider-Man, uh, back to the story, Spider-Man slapped some webbing on the base of the helicopter. Well, I guess John boy will have to get along without me tonight. Uh, John boy was one of the characters on the Waltons. Yes, he was always the last one to be told good night, right? That's right, yeah. <laughs> if I can just form a ladder here, I can climb up to the base of this 20th century bird. Uh, yeah, despite claiming he'll make a ladder, he the webhead just clambers up a strand of his webbing, as usual. I'm not sure what the ladder thing was about. What was that even about? Yeah, yeah I think I have some ideas. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> <laughs> My procrastination might get me a good case of whiplash this time. Now that's a thought. Wonder if I could sue. As a stowaway, I don't think you have a great case here, Spider-Man, i got to tell you. No, no, no. And then we have a caption that reads, So, as Spidey continues his swinging evening, the helicopter nears its destination. And that destination is that mansion that we saw before, this time from the same angle, even. Hey, it looks like we're headed down. If I I can wait until we're over that clump of trees... And so, Spider-Man drops unnoticed into the trees, and minutes later, we find him hanging unobserved outside what appears to be a classroom filled with teenagers. Hey, thanks, Caption. That, that's exactly the scene. Yeah, it just did it for us. Thank you very much. Yeah. Remember, all those people who tell you don't, don't do it. Don't get into heavy stuff. They just try to scare you into thinking it's easy to get pregnant. But I say, how else can you prove you're a man? How else are you going to get a man? That's true. Uh, Having kids always makes every relationship not only better, but easier. Easier and lasts longer, too. Yeah, it's very good. Uh, Almost every time. Anyway, everybody does it. How can it harm you? All that jazz about responsibility and waiting until you're older. That's just to keep you from having a good time. Yeah, when you're waking up every two hours to get peed on, then you'll be having a real good time. Then you'll know what a good time is really mm-hmm. about. Uh, Spider-Man, he doesn't agree with what the prodigy fella's selling right here. Yeah, he thinks to himself, what jive stuff is this turkey hands out? He's really out to get kids. Nothing wrong with being in love or having babies, but there's got a big responsibility. Imagine a baby in my life right now. That's all I can handle to scrape up enough bread to buy my daily Twinkies. Well, now, see, there's your problem right there. You're exchanging loaves of bread for Twinkies. And that's, yeah. that's a bad trade no matter how you slice it. You lose every time. No pun intended. Uh, a couple of the kids in the class have some questions about this lesson in promiscuity. Yeah, a girl who's wearing two bracelets goes, but junior high kids say they see films that tell them, like, things that they want to know, so, like, they learn how, like, it happens. Like, uh, won't that help? Oh, sure, I remember that. Something about a uh, bird marries a bee and they open a flower shop, something like that. I don't remember. Love that. Yeah. Uh, then a guy wearing a T-shirt that's too small for him says, yeah, <laughs> and know what about stuff you can buy at drugstores to keep from getting pregnant or getting VD. Fast-acting laxatives? Yeah, that would work, too, actually. (laughs) Why bother with a lot of hassle? Pregnancy's good for you. Helps your hormones. Even clears up acne. And the best time to have babies is when you're young enough to yourself to enjoy them. 
I thought he was just trying to express that it, you know, pregnancy, you you don't get pregnant under 15. But no. now he's saying that you're... What, what message are we getting here, Prodigy? What a great time on. it is. I don't really... Yeah. <laughs> Spidey thinks to himself here, My webbed head! I'm no Marcus Welby, but there's got to be some way these kids can get the right info. Uh, there's another caption editor's note here. It says, see page 15, Stan. <laughs> Again, referencing a page yet to come and now implying that Stan Lee edited this thing, which I'm going to say he did not. Probably not. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, Marcus Welby, that that uh, little reference there is uh, is Marcus Welby, MD, a medical drama that aired on ABC television in America between the years of 1969 and 1976. Uh, Robert Young played the good Dr. Welby, who was so familiar with his patients, he routinely corrected diagnoses by uh, doctors who worked, quote-unquote, by the book. Exactly. See, they couldn't get off their their strict medical training. They didn't realize yeah, that maverick. these are yeah. people you're working with, you son of a... Anyway, uh, <laughs> Spider-Man has a sudden and very convenient realization. Good grief! I see it all now. This guy's plan is to keep kids from getting facts. They probably don't even know they're getting pregnant at their age is risky for mothers and babies. It's fine for the dudes, though. Am I right, fellas? <laughs> Come on, bring it in, dudes. Come on. <laughs> he wants them to be baby machines, changing diapers, going nowhere in dead-end jobs, sitting home every night trying to find the time and money to go to a movie or buzz out to the burger stand. Oh, oh no way, Spidey. His plan is... Way stupider than that. I can't wait till you hear. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice how uh, having a baby becomes like a trade-off for eating yeah. hamburgers. You know, I know Planned Parenthood's part of this, but is this also like co-sponsored by McDonald's? I, mean, I want to raise my hand and be like, does that mean I, do, do I have to wait 18 years to have a hamburger, or can I have them like when the kid's like six or seven? How does that work? Is, uh, is this is this just hamburgers, or is it all sandwiches? It I mean, what are we doing? Can we, can we do that tacos? What about that? <laughs> Peter continues. What kind of life can they have? No chance to develop. They'll never catch onto this onto his crazy scheme. They'll just be his puppets. What a crafty creep. Yeah, these kids are supposed to be puppets for our shared ideology, not his. Come on. Now, uh, Spider-Man alights to the ground while the prodigy continues his moral instruction. And don't worry. Some folks might come down on you, but you can trust me. Believe me, you'll be safe and have everything you need and want without a worry in the world. <laughs> Your babies won't be a burden. They'll be brought up by experts. After all, they're important. And the hamburgers. Oh, those hamburgers you will have, remember? I'm nonstop. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, in just an hour, I'm going on a nationwide television to tell young people about the glorious, carefree life they're welcome to share in my utopian retreats all over the country. Uh, is this still an alien plot to steal child labor, or has it turned into, like, some kind of crazy pyramid scheme, like a timeshare thing? What's going it's on? Amway. Like, it's yeah, Amway. something weird yeah. happened here. <laughs> Spidey is shocked, to which he exclaims, Galloping guacamole! Uh... What? He said, galloping guacamole! And then he continues to say, this is bigger than I thought! That dastardly dude's got a national scheme in the works to rip off young people! I've got to do something! I'm Fast! Come up with a counter scheme to rip off young people. <laughs> they're, they're easy marks. Yeah, you know, somebody's <laughs> ripping them off, it better be me! Uh, several guys in green uniforms with machine guns silently move towards Spider-Man's position. Yeah, the caption reads, But as Spidey contemplates the prodigy's words and their consequences on the world, not to mention the FCC, he seems oblivious to a network of guards encircling him like so many cans of raid converging on a daddy long legs. Absolute poetry, that. Beautiful. I see why. Oh, uh, weaving. And yeah. was contracted to write this. Uh, <laughs> Spider-Man's spider sense starts tingling. Wait, my spider sense is tingling. Whoops, I've been so involved in the WizKid's speech, I didn't notice. Quick, I'll shoot some webbing up to the roof. Spider-Man does just that and lands on an outcropping that, based on the roof's design, should have an architectural gar gargoyle there. But it doesn't have one, so he assumes a similar posture and tries to blend in. Maybe I can get past that goon by posing as a gargoyle. Unfortunately, Spidey is not quite a dark knight. No, nor is he spawned. A goon, a goon goes, uh, Who do you think you're fooling, Nutsy? G gargoyles are weird, but I never seen one to compare with you. 
What an outfit. Yeah, your green coveralls and matching baseball cap are nothing to scream about either, pal, okay? Uh, Spider-Man's still able to get the drop on them and wraps these guards up and webbing in no time. I'll talk to you about your manners later. Right now, I've got a, I got more pressing matters to attend to. And Spider-Man doesn't know how right he is. For as our hero was fending off guards, the prodigy has quietly, deliberately made his way to his small private TV studio, where the set has been readied for the villain's historic address to the nation. Is this going out like on public access cable? Yeah, well, is this well, like Manhattan cable here? Why is he going to, to a private studio? I don't really understand this. Like, <laughs> and then what, what is he spicing it on every network? Like, I, I thought this was like a planned thing. This wasn't just like a like he has an appointment. Yeah, yes. this is more of a terrorist hijacking of the airwaves. It's a very different thing, folks. <laughs> No, it's actually a pretty impressive, legitimate-looking soundstage with an audio engineer's booth behind glass. So he's he's really knocking it out stuff. Yeah, this is not just a uh, little rig. <laughs> it's like that Search for the Stars show that used to be on the Manhattan Cable. Right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> there's only one camera, but it should do for what the prodigy his purposes are here. Uh, he's got a little crew that works the equipment as well. No close-ups, you fools. Most of all, keep the voice level up. They have to hear my voice. Uh, we're on! What did, what did you hire these guys for if you have to do your own cue? Really? <laughs> Nobody's the only clacking things a clack they have in. to do. Uh, Spider-Man appears upside down in a window looking in on the scene. And here's Brady! Uh-oh, I'd better hurry! Uh, one of the guys says, Five seconds, four, yeah, three, two, one... I thought we were already on the air. Uh, now, Sp- <laughs> Spider-Man bursts thing. in through the window, and he slaps the prodigy's podium into planks. Uh, he really should have went for the camera, but this has the same immediate effect. <laughs> this is fine. <laughs> I know it's a little early, but I think it's time for a station break. How dare you interfere with my broadcast? This is a primetime slot here. He's paying five figures a minute at least. I'll tell you right now, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's high time someone put a stop to your irresponsible influences, Prodigy. Keep the cameras rolling, fellas. This will do wonders for your ratings. Uh, the Prodigy kicks at Spider-Man, who easily sidesteps his attempt. Hold it, Slimy. I have a, I have a hunch you're not what you seem. Stop him. He's one of them. Come on in for a close-up, guys. Let's show these kids who this creep really is. So Spider-Man does the old Scooby-Doo gang on the Prodigy and pulls off his human face mask, and uh, hey, the bald green guy is back. And it's a good thing, too, right? Because that could have been just him tearing someone's scalp off. It it's true. It could have someone's face off, yeah. <laughs> Peter says, now they can see what a gnome-dome you are. And then he thinks, lucky, to, lucky my left side's to the camera. It's definitely my best profile. Um, yeah, thanks, thanks for sharing that. That's cool. Sure. Prodigy says, just listen to me for a minute. Not in your life, saucer man. Your voice is a lethal weapon and my webbing will make a dandy gag. I'll end your plan to trap young people in ignorance, destroying their lives and threatening their children's existence. You can't make kids your robots. I mean, to buy toy robots and breakfast cereal, sure, but not to have unprotected sex. That's that's too far. That's a pale too far, yeah. But thanks to the miracle of modern communication, the cameras are still rolling, and the kids everywhere can see where where you're really at. So, oh wait, isn't it his voice that compels people? Yeah. Does it really matter if he's green, blue, purple, red? If, if he's an insect, it doesn't matter. His I'm, voice is what I mean, does the thing it. Is, he doesn't even look that hideous. He just looks kind of no. like an ugly green guy. You know what I mean? He looks like, sick. Right, you know, yeah. it's like if what he had to say was that compelling, I would think that they would get over it. But. uh... <laughs> Instead, he says, I'll get you for this, you insect, you meddling arachnid. Hey, make up your mind, buddy. Come on. Yeah, what is he? What is he? An insect or arachnid? Uh, Spider-Man shoots a web directly into the prodigy's throat. (laughs) Right? You magnetic maniac? My webs will neutralize your vicious vocal cords. Never again will you mesmerize kids with your destructive propaganda. Uh, until the webbing dissolves in a few hours, right? Isn't it like oh, six yeah, hours or something like that? that. Yeah. Now the prodigy writhes on the ground, clutching at his throat. Aye, aye. Spider-Man turns and faces the camera with a shrug. Hey, you're not supposed to ever do that. What's, wait a second. I know. So ends the pernicious power of the prodigy. And then he thinks, hmm, I look pretty good in front of those cameras. Maybe I'll get a part in a series. Or maybe you can go back to the wrestling circuit and ignore murderers again while you count your cash. 
That worked out that so was, good last that time. That worked well, yeah. <laughs> and that ends our comic. But there's still a few pages of boring stuff that no one would ever, ever, ever read. Uh, it's titled "What the Facts Are," and it's a page uh, about uh, facts about pregnancy, you know, venereal diseases, all that good stuff you'd expect to hear in a comic book podcast, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna guess that the audience is up to snuff on this, but we'll post this page on the blog in the, in the show notes just in case you need a refresher. Yeah, no judgments. If you want to look at it, and, you know, you need need to know, please, it's there mm-hmm. for you to check out. Yeah, right, right. Click, save as. You go yeah. ahead. Yeah. Uh, the inside back cover continues where the facts are, it's titled, and where to get them. Uh, it suggests, of course, one visit a Planned Parenthood Center or call their hotline, but also says that many organizations have programs or counselors that one could talk to the Boys Clubs of America, Family Planning Clinics, Girls Clubs of America, and Public Health Clinics. Doesn't really seem like a lot of options there, Chris, if you ask me, no. but okay. Uh, and there's Spidey swinging by and flipping to all of it. <laughs> <laughs> now, the back cover in yellow, red, and black tells us this that this is a Planned Parenthood pamphlet, uh, number 1543. So if you're collecting all of them, that's, that's this one. Right, yes. Uh, and this is available for 35 cents, including shipping. I bet you can get the uh, three-for-a-dollar bundle if you... Uh... Mm-hmm. If you act now, pick two more. I just want to say two quick things, a couple quick things about this, Chris. Mm-hmm. One thing, one thing we couldn't really convey, but I know that we saw because we read it, is that almost every sentence in this and every word even ends with a period, it does. right? Yeah. Uh, which is weird because comics, to, you know, the tend what, to be exclamatory. The exclamation point. We, we yep. could even say it's overused. So when you don't see it used, you're almost like, well, that's even. But then even even parts like at the end where uh, the prodigy is. Writhing in pain and going arg. It's, it's got a period. Like it's, yep. it's just sort of like passively and all these things. It's like you know he can't tell those kids that they you know whatever have to have sex. It's all done with this kind of passive yep. flair to it. You know what I mean? And it's like this this very flat and and the period has something to do with it. But the other thing which I wanted to mention too is that this appears to me and you let me know if you think I'm off base, but hmm. this appears to me as someone that has read some Spider Man. Probably okay. some Stan Lee Spider-Man, mm-hmm. like three issues, and then did their best to I emulate that. that. I but, can see that. But not not really knowing, you know what I mean? Not really understanding. Yeah. For example, mistaking that he might make a ladder to yeah. me, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, or little little things like that where it's like you could tell that it's somebody that wasn't totally in, but they, they did at least understand there were certain formulas, you know, to this sure, thing. Sure, a little bit of alliteration, a little bit of right, jazzy right. Stanley dialogue-ish kind of tone, but it, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, this isn't uh, someone who could uh, probably go chapter and verse on, on Spidey or, or any comics, I'd imagine. No, but, no. <laughs> but it was a, a, an earnest effort. Uh, it was damn silly. But uh, <laughs> I, I mean, the, I mean my, other, my other problem with it is that I don't believe, it's, you know, it's been a while since I was a teenager, Chris, Sure. but I don't believe that I was basically choosing between between um, not having sex or and like raising a family or or forcibly having sex and raising <laughs> a family, it was like more like I thought if you know it was cool. That's really all I was like. <laughs> it was like it wasn't like I had to be like, well, this fella has some good ideas, but then this guy has some pretty good ideas too. So <laughs> to put it out like that, as if it's like teenagers are like blank slates making a uh, a, a black and white decision. A black yeah. and white decision is really like well. It's, not quite how it went, as I recall. But then again, when we went to school, uh, they gave out condoms uh, with the loose leaf paper. So there was no problem in getting that kind of stuff, at least for my it's me true. and my world. Uh, it's true, and uh, and every every just about uh, every kid was afraid that they they were going to get AIDS anyway. Oh, yes. you know, just just by any sort of. Uh, that's like where they had to like kind of ratchet the fear down a little bit because it got overboard where people were afraid to drink from glasses because uh, oh sure AIDS was out there so yeah it's a uh, different times the, the toilet seat <laughs> sure. I remember also a lot of, a lot of worry, worrying about like bleeding at the playground and stuff like this so oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah you know which is you know that that's for another day but it's a great segue into our hook for the episode what yes. is that Chris we're gonna discuss sex in the seventies now uh, there are a few reasons why Planned Parenthood thought a comic book might be a good promotional tool in the year of the American Bicentennial. 
America and much of the Western world was in the middle of the second sexual revolution, which would affect the way people perceive gender, race, and sexuality as a whole. The uh, term sexual revolution has been used at least uh, since the uh, 1920s, but the first incidence of it was between the years 1870 and 1910, when white America lost its prim and proper Victorian sensibilities. This did not lead to a more permissive society, however, nor did it radically change attitudes towards sex. It just kind of loosened them up a little and uh, paved the way for a women's suffrage as well as uh, a temperance movement that... Uh, didn't end all that well. Yeah, that didn't quite work. But the women still have the vote, so that that, that stuck around. They do. Um, in 1936, Austrian doctor Wilhelm Reich published Disexual Zeit im Kulturkampf, or yeah. <laughs> The Sexual Revolution when published in English, uh, though the properly translated title is actually Sexuality in the Culture War. This is really more of a political treatise framing sexuality against the cultures in which they exist. For, exa- for instance, the book rails against capitalism for failing to provide the sexual reform that it promised. Uh, Reich really picked up from psychologist Sigmund Freud's contention that sexual repression during childhood is a bad thing, essentially. And, and Dr. Wilhelm Reich, I mean, that, that's a name. It that's really a, is. A name for yeah. you. Gu- guaranteed <laughs> he may have worked for a certain uh, Adolf later on, but that's a, that's a whole other thing. Now, uh, we have uh, Alfred Charles Kinsey, a biologist, entomologist, and later on sexologist. He kicked open a public awareness of sex with two books. We have Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, that was in 1948, and, as you might imagine, Sexual Behavior in the Human Female, followed uh, in 1953. These were the results of the Kinsey Institute, which uh, conducted interviews with thousands of subjects in one of the most expansive experiments in human behavior ever conducted. Though some of the methodology has been questioned in more recent times, uh, it was still a fascinating look at people's sexual habits, uh, which were quite varied. Yeah, uh, so all this kind of like now we're just building up a world where you can say the words like talk about sex. That's really all. Yeah. That's all we've done in like fifty years, essentially forty <laughs> years, is, is be able to talk about it. So, uh, the roots of the second revolution, sexual revolution, really do begin though in the nineteen fifties with a rise in babies' birth out of wedlock as well as venereal diseases like gonorrhea. Uh, this created a condition where people had to admit that sex was happening and that folks were not being careful. They kind of had to, like, uh, face that reality. Um, a method for synthesizing penicillin was adopted in 1950, which made many of these venereal diseases treatable. Also, so you had to now go to the doctor and say, I need my shot. And then they would say, well, you just got that shot. Uh, a week ago. Be like, yeah, yeah, uh, back again. Um, in 1953, Chicago resident Howard Hughes started a men's magazine called Playboy. This brought female nudity into the mainstream, uh, at least mainstream North America. And uh, bro- though the magazine was aimed at uh, 18 to 21-year-olds, uh, it wasn't to be sold to those under 18. Hefner really gave his concept of sex a face when he expanded into Playboy clubs in the 1960s where men were served by underdressed women in bunny ears and cotton tails. While Hefner claimed his company contributed to America's more liberal attitude towards sex, which I would agree with, Others believe he simply exploited it, which I would also agree with. Yes. <laughs> <It's a win-win. laughs> yeah. uh, in, in 1960, the U.S. government approved the Combined Oral Contraceptive Pill, the COCP, also known as the birth control pill. This gave women the freedom to not get pregnant from sex. Now, I, just, I just want to break it like, You have to understand, for the first time. For the first time. That's yeah. the first time that that could ever happen. Before that, women had no decision in that whether that would happen. But anyway, yep. go, go ahead. It, it was something that happened to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, The Feminine Mystique is a book written by Betty Friedan. It was published in 1963 by W.W. W. Norton. It's credited with sparking second-wave feminism in the United States. In 1957, Friedan was asked to conduct a survey of her former Smith College classmates for their 15th anniversary reunion. The results, in which she found that many of them were unhappy with their lives as housewives, prompted her to begin research for The Feminine Mystique. She conducted interviews with other suburban housewives as well as researching psychology, media, and advertising. She originally intended to publish an article on the topic, not a book, but no magazine would publish the article. We're going to find out the uh, book ended up doing pretty well. Um, The same year The Feminine Mystique was released, President John F. Kennedy's Presidential Commission on the Status of Women released its report on gender inequality. It found a essentially that the genders were unequal. 
and the commission appointed to review the status of women recommended an end to act to an end to inequities. Legislation followed and the Equal Pay Act of 1963 stipulated that women receive the same pay as men for the same work. Also in 1963, freelance journalist Gloria Steinem authored a diary while working undercover as a Playboy bunny waitress at a Playboy club. Uh, it was published as a two-part feature in the May and June issues of Show Magazine. In her diary, Steinem alleged the club was mistreating its waitresses in order to gain male customers and exploited the Playboy bunnies as a symbol of uh, male chauvinism, noting that the club's manual instructed the bunnies that, quote, there are many pleasing ways they can employ to stimulate the club's liquor volume. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, the following year, 1964, The Feminine Mystique became the best-selling nonfiction book with over one million copies sold. The rise of feminism goes together with the sexual revolution because feminists believe that women can have sex for enjoyment, not just for baby-making. Just to put some context to why we're talking about all this stuff. Yes. Uh, in the late 1960s, beginning largely in San Francisco, hippies adopted the position of free love. This is based on Indian culture, which promotes love, beauty, and sex as part of everyday life. Hippies bolted down, boiled this down to the belief that people can and should have sex with multiple partners. It sort of grew out of a suburban swinging tradition where couples would have key parties, drop their keys in a bowl, and then the woman belonging to that key would go home with the man that selected it at the end of the evening. Those indubitable that all parties consented in some cases, uh, the man's sexual fulcrum of this exercise makes it less free than what the hippies did, which was just sort of women and men can... Love uh, the one you're with. Exactly, yeah. and yeah, at the moment. Uh, this would continue into the 1970s with entire communes being set up around this idea, some of which would grow into sex-based cults. In 1969, Blue Movie, directed by Andy Warhol, was the first adult erotic film depicting explicit sex to relieve to receive a wide theatrical release in the United States. This would open the floodgates for a pornographic film industry that would flourish throughout the 70s, turning theaters and entire dist- and entire districts into purveyors of sex. Uh, in uh, 1972, Deep Throat became a popular movie that played all over America, and was the first porn movie to earn a gross of a million dollars. Also in 1969, the gay rights movement galvanized around the Stonewall Riots, and that occurred uh, in Manhattan's East Village on June 28th and 29th of that year. Though it is worth mentioning that in 1966, the Compton's Cafeteria Riot took place in San Francisco when police officers attempted to arrest some men dressed as women. Uh, That resulted in officers being assaulted by the cutlery in China available in the restaurant. Uh, Professor Susan Stryker, though, who's an author that focuses on human sexuality, says that the Compton's Cafeteria Riot was more an uprising of transgendered men, not homosexuals. And besides, no movement galvanized around the event, as did happen with the Stonewall Riots. It all began at a bar called the Stonewall Inn on June 28th, when officers raided the place to find cross-dressers and homosexuals, these being crimes at New York City, in New York at the time. Uh, there is much evidence to say that these officers acted on this mafia-owned bar because they were not receiving sufficient kickbacks. But the official reason was to find, quote, sexual deviants. The men lined up for inspection and questioning, uh, were, uh, and questioning were recalcitrant, uh, but when the paddy wagons arrived to take the bar patrons away, the mostly homosexual neighborhood erupted in violence. Most of the officers would retreat, with some being taken hostage inside Stonewall Inn. This riot would last two days, after which point uh, several gay rights groups popped in, and most importantly, the concept of gay pride. Yeah, they had that in the gay pride parades uh, had around the country, at least, if not the world, happened on this, these dates for this these reason. Dates, yeah. uh, in 1971, Playboy stopped airbrushing pubic hair out of its centerfold picture spreads. This new edition caused the magazine to hit its all-time peak circulation of more than 7 million copies in 1972. Wow. How yeah. the time does change, huh? But, you know, <laughs> but what you leave, what you leave in, what you take out, it matters. Anyway, uh, discotheques or disco clubs and their attendant disco music began in New York City's underground music scene in the late 1960s as places where people of different ethnicities and sexualities could mingle in club setting. As popularity of the music and its dances like the hustle and cha-cha-cha spread, so too did these disco clubs throughout American cities in the 1970s, often becoming the nexus for emergent gay and black communities. 
New York Studio 54, opened by Steve Rudbell and e- Ian Schrager in 1977, is maybe the most famous disco club, but Odell's in Baltimore, Pepper's Hideout in South Chicago, and all Owl Puches in San Francisco did more to spread the sexual revolution and lasted longer than Studio 54, which closed after three years. That's wild. Yeah. Um, in 1977, Plato's Retreat opened in Manhattan, New York. It's a sex club for swingers catering to heterosexual men and bisexual women. Former Coney Island ice cream salesman Larry Levinson opened the club a year after having been introduced to the lifestyle. The club offered a heating, heated swimming pool, saunas, special cuddle rooms to do more than cuddle. Right. And uh, most amazingly and perhaps disgustingly, a very well-regarded <laughs> dinner buffet. I mean... Could you eat? Could you imagine, Chris? Really? <laughs> How long has this shrimp been out? I can't. This place lasted until 1985 when the AIDS epidemic turned it into a house of horrors. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> oh. Now, the backlash against a lot of this promiscuity in the 1980s was severe and might be something to cover on another episode of the podcast. Yeah. We're going to put a pin in there for there. Let me tell you, that uh, the, the buffet in, in that open-air uh, club. Anyway, I can't I can't think of it anymore. Yeah, but, no, thank you. Um, but we're going we're gonna to read a little bit of uh, listener mail, which was something yes. we try to do regularly, and we're going to continue to keep up those attempts uh this I, is i think the first one we read has a, a merry christmas in it so i does good. right but it is it is i believe after the new year so it's this was only like eight eight weeks old so don't worry uh from uh this is our old pal jeremiah jones gold seen that of course is at big ox 737 and his blog is comics 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 dot blog he says Chris, Reggie, belated Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. It has been a while since I've written, but I wanted to let you know how much I have enjoyed your recent podcasts. The Christmas episode was a lot of fun. I enjoyed the silly stories and your poking fun at it. I know you don't necessarily agree, but I thought it was very funny right up right up there with the Sugar and Spike or Generation X episodes in terms of how funny it was. I really didn't like our Sugar and Spike I can't, I, I, I can't believe he liked the Sugar and Spike amazing, <laughs> but okay. He continues, the uh, New Avengers number one Brian Michael Bendis uh, bio was excellent. Before that episode, I knew very little about the man and have not read much of his work. I didn't even know he was Jewish. I really enjoyed the episode and learned a lot. I always kind of thought he might be overrated, which is just my uninformed opinion. But after listening to that episode and continuing to read his Superman comics, I have a newfound respect for him and his much larger-than-I-knew body of work. I also really enjoyed the Jack Chick Dark Dungeons episode. That was a uh, Cosmic Treadmill After Dark show. That's right. Uh, he says, uh, The Satanic Panic was a fas- is a fascinating subject, and you both did an awesome job with that history. I've picked up plenty of religious tracks, mostly on how to save my soul, but have never actually seen a Chick tract. Yeah, you can go check them out at www.chick.com and uh, order your own if you like. But thanks. Yeah, that's a patron-only show, so if you're curious about that, then that's how you can hear it yourself. Uh, He continues to say, What I really wanted to let you know, though, is how much I have been enjoying your solo episodes. Reggie's episode on R. Crumb was especially challenging. I find it very difficult to figure out where to draw the line on separating the art from the artist. I've struggled with how to feel about Bill Cosby's work over the last few years. I'm a big fan of Fat Albert, his early stand-up, and when I was younger, The Cosby Show. I appreciated you reading that essay, and as, as it must be very difficult for you, too. I know these are just comics, but it's nice to be challenged once in a while. No, he's very right there. I, I think about things like uh, we had uh, that news come out about Gerard Jones yep. not too long ago, and it's it's really hard to separate the, uh, the work from the artist, and... Uh, because uh, there's plenty of books of his that uh, that we would have wanted to discuss, but now they're kind of they're, they're just not going to happen. We've sort of put a permanent uh, <laughs> um, pin in them, you know. We'll see. For sure. We'll see how the what happens in in time, but in, until we're comfortable with them, we're not going to touch them with a ten foot pole. I would say. Yes, <laughs> he continues. I also really appreciated Chris's sharing his, uh, sharing when discussing the Rebirth number one special and his JSA fifty five Christmas episode. I too found the Rebirth issue to be especially gripping. I love the personal nature of each of your stories, each each in your own way. It's a nice touch to the different podcasts you're creating. You've done a nice job of finding a balance between the different episodes. Your main show has great history and information. Your solo shows add a personal touch to the comics you talk about. 
And finally, the off-the-cuff slash back-and-forth in comics talk is wicked fun. Keep up the great work, Jeremiah. Yeah, again, he's talking about a bunch of patron-only stuff, so if you're yes. interested in any of that, go over to patreon.com slash Chris and, Chris and Reggie, and you can find out more about it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's what we what we wanted to do was, was offer... A little more personal reflection, something mm-hmm. a little more uh, from us that isn't like just an information dump. So uh, I'm glad sure. glad that Jeremiah is enjoying it. Uh, he had a p- couple of PSs here. Uh, P.S. I have to listen to Chris's Young Justice end of year end list episode. I wanted to add one more comment. One of my favorite Cosmetrol episodes of the year was the Monster episode number seventy six. It was a wicked interesting story and a great history of manga. All right, uh, that episode really stuck with me, and I think every time I'm looking at the manga section of Barnes and Noble or a comic shop, I thought he meant the episode was like a monster. Oversized, like a big special one. No, but I I remember, yeah. Uh, PPS, I hope you don't feel like I write these emails just to hear you read them on the show. Growing up collecting comics was just something my brother and I did. It was a very solitary thing for us. For the most part, we did not have friends who collected comics. Listening to your shows and then writing makes me feel like part of something bigger than myself. Chris inviting me the, to the SBTU, the Superblog team-up, uh, has gone a long way to doing that as well. It's just good fun. And that is great to hear. That's uh, what it's all about. Yeah. My, you know, i got to say, my, my time growing up with comics, too, I, I, this is not uncommon. This, is, this seems to it's like one or the other. It was or just a bunch of loners. Yeah, yeah it was, it was sol- a solitary thing. Or if you're lucky, you find like two or one or two friends you can, you can sure. kind of get into it with and aren't, basically fight with constantly. Um, <laughs> but for me, too, it was, it was largely a solitary thing. And, I, and a lot of times, as silly as it is to think of, I sometimes felt like I was like, am I the only one reading some of these? You know, like, yeah, am sure. I alone in the world? I, again, I was never like plugged into Wizard and... Other things that would have connected me, and amazingly, I didn't decide to look at the comics internet until like seven years ago or something. I was like, "Oh wait, there is something here about comics." What do you know? Uh, but that's I'm, you know, we're both thrilled to hear that you're definitely part oh, of the. Uh, there could be a cosmic treadmill family, I'd say, Jeremiah. Yes, for sure, definitely part of that. So thank you very much. Now we're gonna jump to one from uh, we're saying Mark Yeager. I'm gonna say Yeager. I'm gonna okay. say Yeager. Uh, please correct us. Uh, <laughs> please correct us wrong. if we're wrong, sir. <laughs> now he is at Mark Yeager, uh, J A G E R on Twitter. He says, "Hi guys, when I listen to your Cosmic Treadmill episodes, I feel like my brain is going to explode due to the overwhelming amount of information you pack in. Please take this as a huge compliment to the quality you put into every episode." Thank you for pointing out the prior episodes that are related to the current one. We do that a lot. (laughs) I hope I can go back and listen to them, but you put out so many shows, I don't think that'll be possible, laugh out loud. In particular, uh, we do do a lot of hours a week. A lot, yeah. (laughs) I want to listen to the ones about the Longbow Hunter. I read that series on uh, DC Universe and loved it. Well, at least I got something out of the comic section at DC Universe. That's true. That app is not doing and went a lot of favors. Oh, they did just dump a whole bunch of stuff on it, Chris. I'm gonna say. I'm did not, they? Not that they pay us to ad- advertise them or that I even care, but but they can if they'd they, like to. They did so. They want to talk to us about that, but they they better keep <laughs> put some uh, Legion of Superheroes on there. Uh, Mark, Mark continues and says, "Also, thank you for the recorded interview with Jerry Conway. That was a break in. I can't remember the episode now." Uh, not that long ago, but it was. Yeah. I, I picked up an a uh, interview from uh, YouTube, and it's in the show notes. Whatever it was from, it might uh, have been the uh, the the JLA JSA crossover. I, I guess it had to be right. Yeah, I think that was Conway Conway, Conway plotting that. with uh, yeah, Thomas. Yeah, that would explain it. Um, so he said that was fantastic. I saw him at Rose City Comic Con in 2018. I attended his panel, which was great. When you mentioned in this episode about his first published story, it reminded me of how he said during the panel that when you're starting out as a writer, the hardest story to get published is your first one. In the case of his first story that was published, the editor thought Jerry had already had a story published before, so he figured he was safe publishing young Jerry's story. That's funny. What a nice break. If either of you can impart any secrets to me regarding how you achieve such a prolific output of writing and podcasting, I will be forever grateful. Smiley face. Thanks, Mark. Uh, what do you, what's your secret, Chris? Um, uh, obsessive compulsion and a patient wife. A patient wife. Uh, definitely yeah. a patient <laughs> wife is a huge component to this. Uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, when we do our scripts, Chris, it's like we talk about usually we just kind of like 
You just gotta get out, set out walking, and like the next thing you do, you turn around and you're like, "Wow, I just, oh yeah, I just put down seventy pages of script." Whoops. It's true. No, <laughs> it's know? true. It's, uh, I, I, I think back to uh, when we were doing the uh, the Green Lantern, uh, the Action Comics Weekly Green right. Lantern, and like that would just come together in in like an afternoon. I remember it's that. Like, yeah. Turned down, and it's like fifty eight pages. Like, what? The, where did that come from? Boom. You know, it just <laughs> just like falls on you. There's uh so much to get into, and you know, because we do go into things outside of comics history sure. that allows us to, you know, pontificate about, you know, other things besides the uh, one field. So, and, and one funny thing, if <laughs> if we ever put our scripts online, our script for Crisis on Infinite Earths has more pages than Crisis on Infinite Earths. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a huge one. Uh, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, you know, there's no other way. To, we have we have a bio for every character shown the in there, character, so it, it's all crazy. The creators, all the Earths, it's, it's, it's wild. Yeah, so maybe, <laughs> we, maybe someday, but go ahead. One of these. Uh, we do have another email from Jeremiah. In it, he says, Chris, Reggie, I've got to tell you how much I love the last Comics Talk episode about writing decompression. I have to agree that this is one of the biggest problems in the industry today. Every year, I get together with my brother and friends and go to a convention for the whole weekend. We do nothing but eat, sleep, and talk comics. More than one conversation will always go like this. Yeah, Jeremiah will say, hey, did you read the latest Comic X? And his friend would say, yes, I'm actually caught up on that one. I enjoyed it. I thought the story was decent and the art pretty good. Yes, it was okay. Probably could have been better. Sure, probably. It was really a three-issue story stretched out too far. Yep, and they didn't necessarily stick the landing. Yes, definitely could have been better. It's and too bad. Too bad they have to write for the trade. We should never do that. <laughs> <laughs> Every single time, and it's it's true. It's a it's, a, a, it's the biggest it's, problem. I think it is. It is for sure. Um. Yeah. Well, he said goes on. One of the things I find so frustrating with the marketing and business practice of stretching the stories out, besides the impact on the creators, is that it directly it is directly at odds with the other huge marketing practice of dealer incentives. Dealers have to buy X number of single issues in order to get some kind of incentive incentive comic, right? So the comic company wants to sell a lot of single issues, right? Mm-hmm. But wait, there's a ton of money to be made in the bookstores and online selling trade paperbacks. Then Comic Company tells writers to extend the story so it'll fit into a volume they can sell for nineteen ninety five. Single issues be damned. We'll make out mon- our money out on the trade. I guess I'm preaching to the choir on this one. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was a great con- conversation on that episode. That's something. It really is something that we have talked about off air constantly. How much it annoys us in current ones that we're reading. Oh, yeah. um, just what's it really? It's it it has uh, killed the single issue. A lot of it is based on this thing, this belief, and I've heard it stated. I'm not sure who stated it. So I'm not going to even try to pick a name. But mm. some executive stated that uh, at the bookstore they prefer to get a complete story in their trade paperback. In their trades. And, yeah. and and to that I say two things. Uh, so do the single issue buyers prefer to get a complete <laughs> story, by the way. I don't, I'm sorry, we also like that. Second of all, use your power to write so that you can satisfy more than one part of the agreement. You know what I mean? You can exactly. have... You there can have, a way to do both. Yeah, you yeah. can have six individual issues that even build to a great... Crescendo, though, or five on the sixth issue will be the payoff. Uh, bring them all together. It's, I mean, we haven't worked it out, but it can be done. Uh, think, think of. I wish they would think of it more in that way, or shorter arcs that you know yeah. build up to uh, something bigger uh, at the end of it. So. Let let subplots bubble away in the background and, and get to something big. But keep you know you can do stories on the way. Just it's, have the day to day stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. like you know, beat, beating up villains. That's uh, what you got to do. So uh, he finishes off the email to say he. I also wanted to mention how cool the Black Hammer episode was. Black Hammer is one of my favorite comics being published today, and Jeff Lemire is a top notch writer. I really enjoyed the bio you did on him, and the interview was awesome. It was so cool that you got him on the show. He sounds like a very nice guy. I'm glad you got him to talk about the Inferior Five, and that book sounds like a lot of fun. I've talked to Keith Giffen and heard him speak on panels. He's really a character. Wow, you've talked to the elusive Keith Giffen. That's a pretty good trick, let me tell you. (laughs) Uh, Hearing Jeff talk about working with him was awesome. I've prattled on long enough, I guess. Keep up the great work. I'll be listening. And thank you so much, Jeremiah. We very much appreciate your thoughts on these things. Uh, 
of course it was great to get to get Jeff on. He turned out to be a pretty cool, normal dude and For sure. We did ask before the interview if we could mention Inferior Five. Because <laughs> it, it was canceled. I didn't want you know we didn't yeah, we want, want to blindside him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also the answer would be nope. You know, is this coming out? <laughs> nope. Okay, then Okay, uh, next question. Next yeah. question. <laughs> but uh yeah, we're we're I I mean I wish I could say that I uh, wholeheartedly embrace with full positive enthusiasm a new comic coming out of uh, the distinguished competition, as we call it, Chris. You know what I'm mm-hmm. talking about? But mm-hmm. I, I definitely am going to look at the. You know, there's no question. I, you know, issue number one, I'm there. I, I got to see what this uh, Inferior Five is all about. Oh, so, for sure. For sure. Uh, we will see, and hopefully, it's going to be a. Uh, Hilarious romp through DC continuity. Where the hell it's supposed to be? I don't remember. It's somewhere around 1988. Yeah. Something about the 80s, and he's doing a Peacemaker backup, right? The uh, yeah, yeah. So that, he's drawing that one too. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, whatever it is, uh, you know, I could definitely use some some uh, fun comics to juice some things yucks. up. But uh, if you would like to write to us about. Uh, Probably not anything Planned Parenthood related, but Spider-Man related, or <laughs> Ross Andrew, or anything about uh, you know what's on your mind. You can write to us about Weird Comics History at gmail dot com. And yes, we do have a Patreon. You can go over there if you like what we do and you want some exclusive content in the form of three exclusive patron-only shows a month. Head on over to Patreon dot com slash Chris and Reggie. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Cosmic T-Mill History. We're also on Instagram at Cosmic T-Mill. On Twitter at Cosmic T-Mill, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. And I'm at Ace Comics. You can check out our weekly writings and recordings on current DC Comics over at WeirdScienceDCComics.com. And uh, you're also doing your bi-weekly Lois Lane uh, deep dive, correct? Yeah, I didn't do it last week, but I will. I'm getting back to it. I swear to God. I swear. <laughs> uh, but you can see Chris's daily writings, which have now morphed into uh, daily breakdowns of an issue of Action Comics Weekly over at ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarths.com. Every single day, there's new DC content. Uh, now it is in the Action Comics. Comics Weekly Time, we're going to call this Era. The Milieu. Milieu, something <laughs> like that, but uh, I'm telling you, you, you just got to go, it's uh, the next best thing to read in the comic. You have a uh, breakdown of the whole thing, panels, ads, Chris's thoughts. You can't beat it. Chris on InfiniteEarths.com. There's also a very exploitable poll uh, once a week where uh, people can vote for Dead Man a lot. Ooh. Yeah, so you got that too. I'm getting over there. Wait a second. <laughs> you can check out the show site. We're at chrisandreggie.com. You can find our show notes as well as a chronological listing of all of the programming. That's the solo shows, the combined shows, and... Uh, well, not the Patreon shows, but those do exist somewhere out there as well. Yeah, you got to go head over to the Patreon for that. But while you're at our site, if you're feeling chilly, you want a T-shirt, click the banner to 80stees.com. And if you like what you see there, you want to pick something up, you're going to help us. You're going to help them. You're going to help your frosty nipples so everyone will be happy. Uh, I too, it's cold. <laughs> you might have to. It's getting <laughs> cold out there. And this, parts of this country are experiencing... Uh, Polar vortices, as I understand it, and also all types of uh, weather anomalies. So, I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? That'll do it. Well, until next time, I want you to keep it on the treadmill responsibly. Mm-hmm. Before you make love today, remember to use up the condo. The condo. Before you make love tonight, remember to use up the condo. The condo. The condom, you know, say it make for every man the condom. You know, I'm a secret weapon, the condom. Me use it up for protection, the condom. You know, I feel nation. White man, black man, and Chinese man. Japanese, Indian, and Syrian. When you use it, your life will last long. Tell me a message coming from Iman. All over the world and the Caribbean. So listen to me talk and understand before you make love to the